0: a Bible, you can take it and turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, and we will be in verses 42 to 47 as we finish up this chapter. As I said last week, we'll finish up Acts 2, um, and then we will celebrate Easter next Sunday, and then we will plan to get back into the book of Acts um, most likely the following week. Thanks to those of you that asked about uh, me preaching this morning, I did preach this morning at Fellowship Church. It was a blessing. It was fun to be there and to be walking in the common area and see Trevor and Carolyn there. Uh, Trevor is on a business trip, so I was able to fellowship with them this morning. So that was encouraging, and also just encouraging to get some some texts and just questions about how things went. So, thanks for caring. Um, Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. Norman Rockwell was a 20th century American artist, uh, most well known probably for the covers that he painted that were displayed in the Saturday Evening Post uh, the magazine. His style is easy to identify once you know what it is. And if you know Norman Rockwell, then you can probably already picture in your mind some of his famous paintings. Uh, One of the family gathered around a table as the mother is placing a giant turkey in the middle of everyone. Um, There's one from the back of a a policeman and a young man, a young boy sitting next to each other on some uh, diner stools. Or there's a series that he did of the Four Freedoms, and the most famous of a a man in a brown jacket standing up at what appears to be a a town hall meeting. Um, And he is able to express his, his point of view and that represents the freedom of speech. Norman Rockwell captures a certain honest and almost playful beauty in some of his scenes, um, though he was also criticized for his pictures. Uh, He was said to paint scenes of American life that were usually just a bit too sentimental or a bit too idealistic. His snapshots were said to be just a little too good to be true. We like read Acts two forty two 42 to 47, and think that it sounds like a Norman Rockwell painting. That its image of the church is just a little bit too good to be true. It's too idealistic. It's, it's almost unrealistic to think about a church that would look like this. But knowing Luke as we do, I don't think that he is prone to sentimentality. That's not Luke's style. He's pretty stick-to-the-facts kind of guy. Rather, he tells us the way things really were there in the early church. And in this summary statement, here at the end of chapter 2, of the days that followed after Pentecost, Luke is painting a picture not of what we wish the church was like, but of what the church truly was like, and of what it still can be like when it submits to the leading of God's Spirit. I find it hard not to read this passage and turn it into a list. And certainly there are items to be pointed out and, and we will consider those. But I also hope that we can look at these verses and see them as a, as a picture, a picture that's painted with, with words. It's, it's a snapshot of what the early church looked like and what the church today can look like as we allow God's Spirit to fill and empower us. What if there was someone who could have taken a picture of the early church, or who had painted some scene from those early days? What would it look like? I think it would look like something what Luke is, is describing here. And so I will explain the passage in points, but I also want to invite you to paint sort of a mental picture of what was happening here. Kids, I know that some of you like to draw during the sermon. You come, if you're my kids, then... You get it from me. I remember as a young child drawing often in the sermon. And so I want to invite you maybe to, to draw a picture of what you see in this passage. I think someone kind of beat you to it. There's a handout paper that is a picture of, of what's going on in this passage. But maybe you can think about what this early scene in the church would have looked like. And actually, as I go through the points, there's four of them. I'll give you a, a picture that you could draw for each one. Um, and adults, if you would like to draw a picture in your notes, that's fine too. Um, but as you consider this summary of the character and the activity of, of the early church, I think what the text is saying to us in large part this afternoon is this: pray for and press into the marks of a spirit-filled people. Pray for and press into, seek after would be another way to say it. Pray for and press into the marks of a spirit-filled people. And as we think about that challenge, pray for and press into the marks of a spirit-filled people, we want to ask, what are the marks of God's spirit at work among his people? How do we know when God's spirit is active in his church? What are the signs? And then once we see them, we are compelled to pray for them to be a part of us, and to press into them, to seek to see them mark us here and now as a church. And so let's read Acts 2, and I'll begin in verse 41. Acts 2, 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Again, this text calls us to pray for and press into the marks of a Spirit-filled people. What are these marks? The first mark I think that we should point out of a Spirit-filled people is the adding of souls. The adding of souls. Now, if you want a picture of this, you might Draw a picture of an open door. Or maybe you could draw a picture of a, a group of people that's welcoming someone in. Uh, you may even draw a picture of someone being baptized, since that's how people are added to this number. Just some options or whatever would come to your mind. But this first mark is the adding of souls. We saw last week that as Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost concluded, that the response of many of the crowd was to ask, What shall we do? They were, they were pricked in their hearts, convicted of the, of the sin of having rejected Jesus as Savior and Lord. And they asked Peter and the apostles, is there any hope for us? To which Peter responds, yes, there is. Repent. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus as Messiah and King. And be baptized. Be baptized to show forth the radical change that has taken place in your lives. Luke records that many people did. We saw that we see that in verse 41. So those who received his words were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So this day that had begun with 120 disciples, gathered in a room in Jerusalem, ends with 3,120 souls united in their belief that Jesus truly was and is Lord Christ, and united by the Spirit who now indwells. Them all. Luke tells us very clearly that this is the work of God, the power of the Spirit in the preaching of the apostles and the pricking of people's hearts leads to what we see in verse 41, that souls were added to the church. We also see in verse 47 that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. As the truth of the gospel went forth, God was building his church. It began with this sort of large influx on the day of Pentecost, and then it continued with a steady growth of, of the days that followed as God continually was adding more and more souls to their number. When God's spirit is active, it will mean that souls are added, that people come to see Jesus as Savior. We don't have any indication here of how frequently that will happen, or how many people might come to know Jesus through the ministry of a particular church, but we see that there is something going on here where people are at If we are honest as a church, then we recognize that we have not seen many conversions and baptisms in our church in recent years. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. And so I want us to be honest about that. I don't think that that means that God's Spirit is completely absent from us. The Spirit works as He desires. John 3 tells us that the Spirit is like the wind. He blows wherever He wants. He does whatever He wants, whenever He wants, and no one knows where He's coming from or where He's going. That's what the Spirit of God is like. He works as as He desires, and we cannot manufacture or schedule revival or conversion in any way that's impossible to do. But, I do think that there should be a longing in us for the adding of souls. Not the the growth of our membership through people from other churches coming to our church. Not the the growth of our numbers so that we can tell other people how many people come to our church. But rather the growth of the kingdom. The growth of the kingdom... Through those who are apart from God coming to trust Jesus as Savior and Lord. The adding of souls. I ask, are we praying to that end? Are we asking that God would use us as individuals and as a church to see souls added to the kingdom? Is this a longing in our hearts that overflows in our prayers? I pray that it is. I pray that it grows. I think it will grow the more we look at the book of Acts. I pray that we would long to see souls added, to be brought, see worshippers brought to the throne of Jesus. But beyond simply praying to this end, are we actively seeking to share the gospel in word and with others? You see in verse 46 that day by day, these followers of Jesus were attending the temple together. Of course, this was their custom. As as Jewish people who simply believed that Jesus was the promised Messiah, there would be no reason for them to stop going to the temple. But it would also seem that their presence in the temple was a way of proclaiming to their fellow Jews who Jesus was, of announcing that he was Savior and Lord. They were active in their community. They were rubbing shoulders with people that didn't agree with them about who Jesus was and telling them who they believed Jesus was. And God was adding to their number, not simply because they were praying, but because they were active. They were pressing into this. I think we also see in verse 47 that they had favor with all the people. This group of, of Jesus followers was a group that people found to be respectable and kind and generous. In short, they liked at least at this point in the history of the church, they weren't looked on as disruptors. They weren't people to be avoided. They weren't a blight on the city. Rather, they were a great blessing. They were held in high esteem by others outside of their number. I can remember as a student at Moody Bible Institute that the president one time shared that a member of the the community there in Chicago had said that when the students of Moody returned each fall, it was like someone had turned a light on. In that part of the city. And what a great testimony that was. My question is, is that the same? Is, is, is that true for our churches? Is that true for us as a church? Do we bring light into the neighborhoods that we come into? When when we left our spot on Barstown Road, is there a hole that is left? Are we missed in some ways? I've heard from some that we are, and I'm encouraged by that. Is that true of us, though, as a church? Is that true of us as as individuals? Not that we're people-pleasers, but that we're ambassadors of the kingdom. We're a person who who brings grace and peace where we go. As we think about the adding of souls, surely this is the the work of the Spirit. Uh, We have to be praying for that. It's not something we can manufacture on our own. But we should also not not neglect to proclaim the gospel, as we go about our daily lives. And we as a church should strive to live as those who have favor with all. We adorn the gospel with kindness towards strangers and patience at the grocery store, love for the outcast. We teach English on Tuesday nights. We provide meals and necessities to local rescue mission. We live lives that are above reproach, that are marked by integrity and righteousness. And as we do, we trust that God will add souls, not simply to our church, but to his kingdom for his eternal glory. Let's be honest, when we look at this, when God's spirit is active, people are added. There's no denying it, and it's not wrong to identify it. So let's, let's be honest and ask ourselves, are we praying to this end, and are we pressing in to see people added to God's kingdom? God's Spirit is at work. There's most often the adding of souls. So let's pray for that and let's press into it. Second, we see here that God's Spirit's presence is seen in a love for truth. So there's the adding of souls. And the second thing that we see is a love for truth. A picture you might draw for a love for truth, you could simply draw a Bible. You could draw someone teaching Others, you can also, and you'll see this later on, you could draw the bread in the cup that we use when we take the Lord's Supper together. Those are some options as we think about this mark of God's Spirit as a love for truth. I take this from two phrases. The first is in verse 42 that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Those who had been with Jesus from the beginning and who had been taught by him after his resurrection, passed on what had been given to them. Jesus, in John 14, 25-26, speaking to his disciples, says this, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And so now the apostles, filled with the Spirit, recall what Jesus had said and done, and how he had opened their minds to see that he was the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. And then they take these things, that they are being taught by the Spirit, that they have been taught by Jesus, and they teach them to the souls that are being added to the church as they together are seeking to walk in the ways of Jesus. Note that the coming of the Spirit did not mean that there was no need for the apostles to teach for the people to learn, the church is not anti-intellectual because it is focused on spiritual things. The presence of the Spirit doesn't eliminate the need to study the Scriptures. From the beginning, the church loved the truth and longed to learn and to grow in the teachings of the apostles. John Stott brings this idea to our present day when he writes this. He says. Since the teaching of the Apostles has come down to us in its definitive form in the New Testament, contemporary of I the mean, present day devotion to the Apostles' teaching will mean submission to the authority of the New Testament. A Spirit-filled church is a New Testament church in the sense that it studies and submits to New Testament instruction. The Spirit of God leads the people of God to submit to the Word of God. Like that last phrase, the Spirit of God leads the people of God to submit to the Word of God. We don't worship the Bible, but we submit to its teachings as having been handed down to us from Jesus to the apostles and then to us. And so we love the truth that's contained in the Bible because it teaches us of the salvation that we have in Jesus and how to walk with and please him. May we always be a church that loves and learns and lives under the authority of the Bible. If we're doing that, then we are showing that we are filled with the Spirit. I think another phrase that points to the early church's love of the truth is when we're told that they were devoted to the breaking of bread. That's in verse 42. This They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread. Of bread, uh, That phrase occurs in 42, but it also occurs in 46. They were breaking bread in their, in their homes. This could be just a reference to the fact that they ate their meals together, uh, which is what I think it does mean in verse 46. But the breaking of bread can also be a reference to the Lord's Supper. And in fact, the, the fact that in verse 42 it says that they were devoted to the breaking of bread makes me think that this is a reference not just to them eating together, but to the Lord's supper. Some of us are very devoted to breaking bread make sure that we eat our meals. But I think there's a deeper devotion that's going on here. From the beginning, the disciples of Jesus obeyed the command of Jesus to remember him through the meal that he had instituted. And in so doing, they made his death and the salvation that he bought through that death, they made that central to who they were. They loved it, because they loved that truth. And as we, as a church, continue to observe the Lord's Supper, we preach that sermon, as it were, and we proclaim the truth that forgiveness is only found through faith in Jesus and His finished work. We proclaim that over and over again. We proclaim that our unity and our salvation is founded on the fact that Jesus, though sinless, took our sin upon Himself, and died to pay the penalty that we deserve, so that through faith in him, we can have forgiveness and new life. We proclaim as we take the Lord's Supper that it is on Christ and Christ alone that we stand. And when we continue this practice of the Lord's Supper, we show that we love the truth. We love the truth of the gospel in Jesus Christ. When the church... Is led by and filled with the Spirit, it will be devoted to and in love with the truth. The truth of Jesus in the New Testament and the truth expressed in the Lord's Supper. This is why our services center around the reading and the teaching and the preaching of God's Word. Well, While we encourage you to read the scriptures on your own and to read it with others. It's why our small groups study the Bible when they It's why we continually proclaim the gospel through the Lord's Supper. Because if we are filled with the Spirit, then we will love the truth. So brothers and sisters, let us never move away from that. Let's never lose our focus of this love. Let's not find that there's some other source or there's some other foundation for our belief and our practice. But let's pray for a deeper love of the truth. And press in to value the truth more and more. Not just so that our heads can understand it, but so our hearts and our lives can live it. What marks the Spirit's presence in the church? We see the adding of souls, we see a love for the truth. Third, we see a love for one another. A love for one another. This is probably what stands out most in this passage, I think. A love for one another. If you want to draw a picture, you could draw. People sharing a meal together, sitting around a table. Maybe you could draw people giving away money, giving away things. We'll talk about the generosity. If you want to keep it simple, you could just draw a heart, a love for one another. We see this in first in that they were devoted in verse forty-two to the fellowship, the fellowship, the quinonia. Now, fellowship can be a, a tricky word for us. In, in some circles, fellowship has become a word that refers simply to some sort of surface-level conversation that happens when we get together. Frederick Buechner says of fellowship that it is a word that has become so stale and overused by churches that it summons up little more than drinking coffee in paper cups with each other after the 11 o'clock service. I think he has a point, um, though it may not be that drastic. So maybe we won't throw out fellowship, but maybe alongside fellowship we could use the word friendship. I was talking with some brothers about this, how true friendship may be a a better way for us to understand what this word fellowship means, because that's what's really happening there. A, A true friendship, a true sharing of lives in love is what marks the Spirit's presence amongst His people. Do we know true, deep, lasting friendship amongst one another? Of course, friendship often involves coffee in paper cups. At least for me, it does. Or it involves meals with one another. Verse 46 tells us that they were often together in one another's homes, sharing meals together. I have a a friend, Will, who works for Youth for Christ, and he always is saying, food makes friends. Uh, he talks about it in terms of evangelism. They often will have food to help uh, people come together to hear the gospel. But food also makes friends amongst God's people. That when we get together, we gather around a meal and we grow in friendship. There there may be times when our Sunday potlucks can be difficult to prepare for and tough to stick around for. And I understand that. They're, they're, but they're, they're meant to be this place for fellowship. And friendship can happen. And that takes time. And sometimes it's awkward and it's hard. And sometimes we do it better than others. But it's a good place to grow in fellowship and friendship. We can, around the table, share each other's joys and trials. We can encourage one another. Maybe even time where we rebuke one another. Where we can freely share our thoughts. We can have honest discussions. That's what families do, isn't it? We tell people what we're thinking. If there's any place that I feel unhindered, it's with my family. I tell my wife and my kids what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling and what I'm processing. They are church like that, like a family that works through things together. Of course, sometimes friends just enjoy being together, just hanging out. This is what was happening in the church. Fellowship and friendship rooted in their common faith in Jesus and their desire to grow in Him. They were continually growing in love for one another. And if God's Spirit is among us, then this kind of love for one another, this kind of sharing of our lives will be growing. This is something that we can pray for, but we should also press into it. There's a a thing where the Spirit has to to bring us together to, to develop that kind of deep friendship and fellowship and love, but it's also there's a building of this kind of love and friendship that, that takes the investment of time and energy. It's going to take time and energy on all of our parts. It may take more effort, in fact, to build friendship at church than in other places. Because just because someone goes to your church doesn't mean they would naturally be your friend. Okay? That's just, I'm not trying to make anyone feel bad, but (laughs) that's reality, right? Just because someone goes to your church doesn't actually mean that they would be your friend. But our unity in Jesus and our bond in the Spirit allows us to grow more and more in knowing and loving one another. And if that bond is there, that unity, that commitment, that covenant, then it gives us the opportunity to have friendships that go even deeper than anything we could imagine that was based on a mutual interest or a mutual like. Practically, I think this just means doing what the church did. It means showing up for services. It means being a part of small groups. It means inviting folks over to your house for dinner, even when your house is a mess. It means hanging out at a park together. It means getting together to play a game together. There's nothing unspiritual about that. In fact, some of those things build deeper bonds of friendship that lead to deeper conversations later on. And as we do these things, we we grow to know one another, we grow to trust one another, we grow to love one another in a unique, spirit-infused way. We have to press into this, though, and make time and effort and energy to do it. I think this kind of... Devotion to fellowship is also expressed not just in in these meals that were had together. The devotion to fellowship and receiving the food with glad and generous hearts, but also there's a generosity that's happening in this early church amongst one another. Verses 44 and 45. Look at those again. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. Friends were all together, and it was sort of a what's mine is, is yours, what's yours is mine kind of place. They saw friends around them who had need, and they said, What do I have that I can share? I think it's a good question to ask as we think about fellowship. What do I have that I can share? What do I have? What does my family have? What do I have personally that I can give to others? that will show them love, that will meet a need in their life. Some things that come to my mind right off the top of my head may be your home. You have a home that you can share, that you can invite people into to feel welcome and to feel a part of your family, to feel a part of the family of God. You have a car. Maybe you have a car to help people get from one place to another to get a ride to the airport or get a ride to work or get a ride when the car breaks down or all these other things. We have been given this gift of a car. How can I use this to show the love of Christ to us? We have food. Most of us have more food than we need. How can I use food as a way to bless others? When we have potluck together, sometimes it's hard, and sometimes you come and you don't have anything. And you should always feel welcome to stick around because there's always... But sometimes there's great joy in bringing something unique to share and to bless others. To bring a birthday cake. To bring a special meal that blesses others and shows the love of Christ in some real practical way. Or maybe it's food for someone who really has no food at all. You can bless them in that way. Maybe it's money. Maybe someone does need money to help with schooling, to help with a house payment, to help with something that they need in particular. And the thing that we all have that's probably most valuable to us is time. Do we have time that we're willing to share with others? That's where we really will grow deep in our fellowship. you give someone else your time, you are saying, I love you. I care about you. When we say, I don't have time for something, we're not usually short on time, it's just not usually as important to us as other things. And so when someone gives you their time, you know that they are expressing love and affection for you. These are just some practical questions, and answers to that question, what do I have that I can share? I invite you to think about that, to pray about that. What do I have that I can share with my brothers and sisters in Christ that show love to Christ in a deep way? true fellowship, deep gospel friendship, it's a good word to think about, maybe gospel friendship, is a mark of God's spirit at work among us. And we have to pray for it. To ask God to to build that within us. But we also need to take practical steps to see it grow in our lives. So we're starting to fill out this picture, I think, of the the early church with these different elements The adding of souls that marks the spirit. A love for the truth that marks the spirit. A love for one another that shows us that the spirit is active. And then finally the power of God. The power of God is evidence of the spirit's work amongst us. If you want to draw a picture for that, you might draw someone praying. We'll talk about prayer and the power of God. That's one picture you could draw. If you want to draw fire. I think that fits right in with this passage. There were tongues of fire that came down, and that represented God's power to the people there. The power of God. Two phrases that point us to the power of God amongst his people. One is that they were devoted to prayer. That's the fourth thing there in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the prayers. And then verse 43 gives us this description. And all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Devoted to prayer though, before the, the day of Pentecost, the followers of Jesus were devoted to prayer. And now that the Spirit has come, they are still devoted to prayer. They recognize that they had to continually rely on and seek the power of God. And prayer is the way that he has given us to do that. Prayer is an act of faith. Prayer is an expression of need and inability. It says to God, I can't, but you can. When the church comes together and prays, it says, we can't, God, but you can. And if the work of the church is truly a spiritual work, if it's truly a work of God, then only he can do it. And only when we are asking him to help us will great and mighty mighty things happen in his name for his glory. The church knew of these mighty things, of the greater works that Jesus had told them about that they would do. We see in verse 43 that there was a continual sense of awe amongst them all. They were just always astonished and amazed at what God was doing. We're told that signs and miracles were happening among them. Those same words that we read about Um, In in verse 22 of chapter 2, about Jesus' mighty works and wonders and and signs, and these things were happening amongst the apostles. They were pointing to the truth of what they were saying about Jesus, that he truly is the Messiah. Everyone was astonished at the things that were happening in the early church. Maybe another picture you can draw would be just someone with their mouth wide open, just shocked all the time. What is God doing? This is amazing. That's what the early church was like. We have said that there was a certain uniqueness to this time period in salvation history. There's a transition happening, and these miracles attest to the unique way that God is building his, his church. But I think there's still hope for God's power to do amazing things amongst us. Because God's power can be seen in many different ways. It can be seen in miracles. It can be seen in, in healing that points to the power of God. But I think it's also seen in other ways. Even this love that we have for one another is sometimes a miracle. The fact that God can draw a unique and diverse group of people into deep fellowship and deep friendship with one another is a sign of his power. Whatever it looks like, though, if we have eyes to see it there, and we are seeking out the power of God, there will be times when we say, that's an evidence of God's power. That could be, we look at things and we say that apart from God's spirit, this could not happen. That sin could not be rooted out of my life apart from God's power. That relationship, there would be no chance for this relationship to be healed apart from God's power. Are we looking for those kinds of things? If we are to see the power of God in our church... We can never cease to be a praying church. We can never think that we need to do more things to see God's power and neglect to ask of God to do His work amongst us. God's Spirit leads us to dependence on God. And as we pray for and press into this mark of power, our pressing in will in fact show up in more prayer. We need to To pray that we would pray and that we would press into God's power is by praying. But I think pressing into this idea of power also may mean that we try things that we know can only happen through God's power. William Carey, the father of modern missions, faced opposition in his desire to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. But he pressed forward, and he's remembered by this quote, Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. I think we need to do both. We need to expect that God can do great and amazing things. But we also need to attempt great things for God. For to see his power, we have to believe that he can. But we also may need to try to do some things that we know will be impossible apart from the power of God. Sometimes we just do things that we can do on our own. But when we step into things that are more difficult, that show only God to do this, then He is ready and willing to step in and do amazing things to show His power. So, how do we know God's Spirit is at work? When God's Spirit is at work amongst His people, there is the adding of souls. There is a love for the truth. There is a love for one another. And there is the power of God that's present amongst us. give you two practical ways to use these four points in this picture. Use these marks as a way to pray for our church. We said to pray for these things, right? So we, we want to pray for them. To pray for the adding of souls. To pray that we love the truth. To pray that we would love one another. To pray for God's power. When you sit down to pray for Grace Fellowship Church, and your mind is blank, think about these four things, these four pictures. What a great way to pray for our church. And also, as you seek to apply God's word, as we all do, we can use these as w- as a way to consider how we can grow as a member of this church. What do I need to do to help us see God's spirit at work in these four different areas? Are there ways that I can grow as a witness of the gospel, whether on a Sunday morning through the hospitality that I offer people that may show up, or through inviting the neighbor to come, or through the way that I share the gospel in my workplace? Are there ways that I need to grow to love the truth more? Are there ways that I need to grow to love my my fellow believers more? That I can seek to have great friendship with those that I go to church with? And are there things that I can attempt knowing that only God's power can do it. How can I grow as a member of this church in these four areas? Let me close by saying, I don't think that the picture that's painted in Acts 2, 42-47 is supposed to be one that we sort of put onto our church and then trace it. I used to love those books when I was a kid because I felt like such a good drawer, that drawer word. Artist, I felt like a great artist, when you would put that that sort of somewhat clear paper and then you could draw amazing things, and I'd say, look what I drew, and I didn't really draw anything, I just sort of copied what was there. I don't know that, that this picture is supposed to be something that we're supposed to put on our church and trace, just as Norman Rockwell's pictures of an idealized America, they're not the same. I think this is where some people get into trouble. They imagine that any church that doesn't look like this church here has not reached the ideal and perfect state of the New Testament church. They focus on saying, well, they were meeting from house to house, and if you're not meeting from house to house, then you're not having that true New Testament church thing going on. I think that these things are transferable. But I also think that the is that it's more the principles that are here. It's not necessarily that it has to look like this picture. As we think though, about about what is at the core of what is happening in the early church, we see these marks that we try to pull out of God's spirit at work. and We can seek those out, and we can seek those out in unique ways, unique even to our church amongst other churches. Some of it might look exactly the same as it looks here. Having a meal in your house hasn't changed much in 2,000 years. Maybe the food is different, the utensils are different, and things like that, but it's pretty much the same. But there are some things that are very different. But I think as we seek to walk in the Spirit, and as we do that as a church well, we will see these evidences of God at work amongst us. This is our desire. This is what we want as a church, for God to use us as he will for his glory, for his spirit to fill us and use us. If that's our desire, then let's pray for this and let's press into the marks of a spirit-filled people of God as we seek to honor God with our lives and in our church and in our community. May Grace Fellowship Church be a place where souls are added to the kingdom. May Grace Fellowship Church be a place that loves the truth. May Grace Fellowship Church be a place where people love one another, deep fellowship and gospel friendship. May our church be a place where God's visible power is always leading us in awe as to what he is doing. And in all of that, our great desire is that God would be glorified. God would be glorified through us as his spirit works amongst us for his glory.